Good morning. Welcome to Tuesday, February 6, 2024. Should get Ford earnings at 5 p.m. today, and they may take a bigger hit than General Motors based on what the UAW did to them during the strike, and we'll uh, await that. But uh, the profit-sharing numbers will be released, and either way, that's always, uh, to some degree, good news for us. Can I just say, may we bring whiskey for the team, beer for the horses, and raise a glass to Toby Keith? I know, man. That's... I was shocked when you told me this morning. That's a gut shock. Yeah, six. You know, I guess I wasn't shocked because I knew he was ailing, See, and, and I didn't know he was ill. So that was a it was a shock. Right. To me. I can't remember if it was the CMAs or where it was that I saw him, and he, you know, he was such a big, burly, robust guy, and he was just reed thin, and even I think you, you were saying yeah. you made a joke about his. He said you wouldn't, you, you didn't think you would ever see me in skinny jeans. <laughs> Which was, you know, what was great about him? All of his songs, or many of them, had an element of humor in them. Mm-hmm. Beer for my horses, how do you like me now? Um red solo cup. There was all they were humorous without being like a a quirky hit, you know? I yeah. mean they were they were they without were being weird al. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there you go. That's a, that's it, good. It, it, yeah, it wasn't a novelty hit, right? <laughs> right. Um have you got a favorite? I was going to pick how do you like me now. Yeah. Great great now song. Album on your radio. Yeah. 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 Nick. The red, white, and blue is always good. That was good right after 9 11. You know, he so distilled our outrage in that song. And then you, you, you know, you counter that with Alan Jackson, Where Were You in the World Stop Turning? Those two songs capture the outrage and and the the heartache. Yeah. And, and, um, I mean, we're just, they were helpful at the time. They help us get some of that out. Um, I will tell you that if we ever karaoke together, Who's your daddy is my karaoke oh, go-to. Well, now. Um, yeah. And I loved, uh, you know, You Shouldn't Kiss Me Like This. Uh, I, I like that yeah, one, that, too. Yeah. You know, so there's yeah. just so many. Jason, you got one in there? Not a big country fan, but the red, white, and blue, that song always fires me up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he hit the, and he, he tells, I, I saw him in 2003 when Ford had their uh, centennial. Okay. He was the lead act for the big concert that the birthday concert that they threw perfect guy i mean for a company that is all about their trucks none better than 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 (laughs) toby keith Keith. yeah but he talked about stumbling one day one of the biggest mistakes he said i ever made is i stumbled onto willie nelson's tour bus and he says i'm still trying to get those brain cells back (laughs) (laughs) he said you know he said you needed a knife to cut through the smoke is that where beer for my horses came from? It it may may have been, <laughs> um, but uh, no, uh, dead at sixty two, and then you know a cancer These guys diagnosis. Guys in their sixties are know. passing away. We just talked about Earl Curitan. Right, so he was sixty six. Yes, which young. is you know twenty years younger than the what seems to be the the average now. And then we got the diagnosis on Prince Char- uh, King Charles yesterday right. and this still lingering question about well if it isn't prostate cancer then what is it it yeah. is something thankfully that apparently can be treated outpatient and will allow him to continue his duties he said he's going to stay in though and do paperwork and things like that and not go out and so prince william is going to take or what is he duke of cambridge or something now he's going to take on more of the duties and it's something that you know when you hear when you heard that you said oh my god because the the queen just left here. He just, just he waited his just whole months. life to be king. Yes. And I got this moment. I'm like, oh, really? 
Yeah. But yeah. hopefully he is okay. Prince Harry is supposed to fly to go see his dad. Hopefully that relationship is getting and better. And I heard of, you know, I heard of one of the one of the talking heads from Britain saying, but he if he thinks about it, he best not bring his bride. And I thought, well, this is a time when families should all families yes. should be healing, right? Let's Come not together. get into all that. Uh, <laughs> Gail just finished a book about Camilla, and boy, did I get an earful last night about you know. I geez. have some thoughts, but we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, let's I'm a be, big Princess Diana person. Are you, let's okay. let's be positive. Yep, okay. yep. If you can't say something nice, no, I'm right there with you. Uh, but I I hope you know if if anything good comes out of it, that this heals this rift between Harry and his. His family. Um, meantime, uh, the jury asking some interesting questions that may be um, elucidating in some ways. Yeah, deliberations began yesterday in Jennifer Crumbly's involuntary manslaughter trial after seven days of testimony. Jennifer and her husband, James, they face charges in connection with the death of the four students at Oxford High School with their son already sentenced to life in prison for the shooting. It's the first time a parent has been charged with manslaughter in such a case. After jury instructions, five alternates were chosen for sequestration. The remaining 12 jurors started deliberating, raising questions about the prosecution's theories and the acquisition of the gun use in the shooting. Among the questions raised as well was whether they could infer reasons for the shooter's absence. From the stand, as the deliberations unfold, many Oxford families were there anxiously awaiting the jury's decision. Despite hours of deliberation, no verdict was reached uh, yesterday. The jury will reconvene, Guy, this morning. Three alternate jurors were chosen to remain sequestered at home. I, I heard some what I thought pretty good analysis from Sean Lay via Judge Vonda Evans, who said, when you see a jury looking for testimony that hasn't been entered into, it means that they're struggling to get from reasonable doubt to zero doubt. Mm -hmm. And you have to remind them, you can't find zero doubt. There will always be doubt. So you need to seek the reasonableness of it. And again, ask the question, what would a reasonable parent do? Mm -hmm. What was ordinary care? And I thought Todd Flood was really good on that. You can check out that podcast at WJR.com. Um, some of the uh, leaders in Dearborn are calling on the Wall Street Journal to retract it's op-ed piece uh, that labeled the city of Dearborn the world's jihad capital. The, in my opinion, the headline was flat out wrong and inflammatory. Mm -hmm. But if you're waiting for a retraction, I think you're going to be waiting a long time because yeah. newspapers are not in the habit of retracting the truth. And there was very little in the body of it that wasn't factual or that was inaccurate. Nevertheless, they are outraged. We're asking that the Wall Street Journal take an immediate retraction, apologize to not only this community, but to all its readers. Inflammatory rhetoric like this is a direct contributor to the wave of Islamophobic violence our community has had to endure. No, was it inflammatory rhetoric? They're saying, look, you have people that are jihadist promoters in your community, both online and in person. And they have video and they, they have... We, I we, was thinking about this. It, yeah. put, sorry to no, interrupt yeah, you, Lloyd, no, but yeah. I was thinking if the title was different, if the headline was I different. I was saying the same thing. Yes. You know, like <clears throat> some in Dearborn support Hamas. That would be the title of the, what they talked about in the article. But what they're saying is the concentration of them is higher there than just about anywhere else in the U.S. And what these folks are saying, and look, when we're calling for peace... That's not promoting jihad. Well, show me that line. Because when you're condoning October 7th, which is what many were saying, if you're not condemning it, you're condoning it, yep. then 
then you may not be a jihadist, but you're a jihadi sympathizer. If you went to the protests, if you're just a yes. regular family with kids, you know, who go to forts in high school, right. you right. don't have anything to do with this. And Ex- I can understand why those yes. people are upset. Yeah, yeah. But um, journalists are not in the habit of, or editors are in the habit of retracting the truth. This may be, you know, Al Gore didn't give us much as vice president, but he did give us a great term for this, and it's called an inconvenient truth. Just because you don't like it doesn't make it untruthful. That's right. Um, meantime, Brad Holmes giving us hope for the future. Brad Holmes came in hot yesterday with his um, press conference, and he was calling out some people who said, oh, you didn't like that pick I made in 2021? Oh, you didn't like, you know, Panay Sewell? So that was kind of fun. He was hot. But the overarching message is, you know, this is not a one-off. What I want to tell, really, our fans is, look, it's only going to get better, okay? We're only going to get better, all right? I don't want... Anybody to think that this was a, a one-shot Cinderella magical journey that just happened? No, it's real. All right, this was this is exactly what it was supposed to happen. And I understand that based on history, from what's happened in the past, like I understand you have a season like this, it's easy to feel like this was kind of a a one-shot magical, lucky, uh, cute story, which I'm tired of hearing. Uh, it's it's it, it was it was none of that. It's it was none of that. He said it's not cute, and they're right. going to make decisions moving forward to make this a perennial winner. And also, Lions owner Sheila Hamp sent a thank you Classy. note to season yes. ticket holders, and I think that's very nice because she doesn't usually step into the spotlight, but she is a big reason why the success that's happening. Just a couple quotes. She said. The success of this season is what that vision looked like. Now we must go about making late January football a constant in Detroit. The future for the Detroit Lions has never looked brighter. At the end, please accept my personal thank you from myself and my family for supporting us throughout the season. And she called out people who went on the road, people who were in the Lions gear in their living rooms, at schools. The folks chanting Jared's name in any number of different venues. Yeah, There's a lot to look forward to here, and I just thought... It was great that she said For real. Right. For real this time. There, yeah. <laughs> and every business has to show gratitude for its customers. And so often they don't. Yeah. <laughs> this is a business that's saying, we are nothing without you. And I thought that was a really mm-hmm. important message. And we're not done. That's right. Yeah. It is 616. When we come back, Tim Wahlberg on his concerns about the so-called bipartisan border deal in the Senate. Next on JR Morning. So the Senate has released the text of its bipartisan border security bill unclear they're going to try to take a vote this week though some senators have pushed back and said this is too complicated to do in a rush and we would rather not do that senator james langford who is the main architect of it says this the border security bill will put a huge number of new enforcement tools in the hands of future administrations the bill provides funding to build the wall increase technology at the border and add more detention beds more agents and more deportation flights It ends the abuse of parole on our southwest border that has waved in over a million people. And yet, the Speaker of the House has said it's DOA there. So why? And is there room here for a middle ground to take maybe the best of the two competing bills here and come up with something that will reduce the flow? Uh, That may be a question that will be put before our next guest uh, in the next couple of weeks. Congressman Tim Wahlberg, Republican of Tipton, joining us live on JR Morning. Good morning, sir. 
Good morning, guy. Go Lions. I'm ready for the Super Bowl. <laughs> I, I hate to Next break year. the news to you, but they're not there. I want to live in your world. <laughs> Believe well, me. I'm I'm uh, I'm already rooting for them. They'll be in Super Bowl next year. So let's start. Let's start uh, playing right. for them. We'll start there. So, question <laughs> for you here: uh, You've I know that the t- you haven't seen the nitty gritty of the text, but we have seen right throughs from Senator Langford. Senator Graham said there's some meaningful things here. Let's start with what you like about what you heard in this bill, and then we'll get to your concerns. What I like is is support for Israel and Ukraine in defeating uh, terrors of the world, both Russia and uh, Iran, uh, using Hamas. Of course, all four terrors of the world, uh, Russia, China, um, Iran, and North Korea are are linked together. We have to take that. But I tell you what, um, what the people want is a secure border. They're not asking for immigration reform. Um, (laughs) That just isn't going to happen when we're coming to an election year. Right now, they want immig- they want border uh, security, and 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 um, if if you watch and listen to the polling that's taking place uh, and support uh, for who has the best idea on on border security, it's it's Trump. Fifty seven percent of the people polled, as, as you just reported, uh, that that bo- uh, that Trump has a better plan, uh, and they feel more secure with him securing the border. And what is that? That's HR two that we passed twice already and chuck schumer is the one that's saying it's dead on arrival and he's held it dead we passed it the second time with uh funding for israel and so it's about time that they do something uh in in giving us a, a bill that actually will pass and i would say based on the polling people want hr2 um congressman could there be some good in this bill though can't the house look at it and pick some things out and send it back to the Senate and discussion happen between the two houses? No, no. I think it's time for the media and others to say to the Senate, you work on HR two. That's what you ought to do. Why is it always the house's responsibility, except what the, the garbage the Senate gives us. And that's what it is. It hasn't worked. It won't work. And they haven't sent us anything yet. That's the, the deal. Uh, right now I'd say, uh, Jamie, that um, it's very unlikely that this, bill that they're talking about has the votes to pass the senate so i'd say until it looks like they have the votes that's not the bill we ought to be talking about we'll talk about the one that is quickest to pass because it's been passed out of the house that's hr2 we passed it twice what will hr2 do that this bill won't i mean this sets a higher standard for amnesty it ends catch and release it forces those that cross through legal checkpoints, immediate expulsion. Um, there, there has to be a process, obviously, but it will include detention, not release. And if they are released, it will be on a tether. Why isn't that a dramatic improvement? What's better about H.R. 2? Because that won't work. That won't work. We know what works, and that's H.R. 2. That was Trump's plan. We, did, we are not unique. <laughs> as, so H.R. 2 just time. spins back the clock to what Trump did, essentially, for those that exactly. haven't? Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's what people are saying. They knew that when Trump had his policy working, we didn't have thousands crossing the border. We didn't have 5,000. We didn't have 2,000. We had less than 1,000 who were coming across the border, and sometimes in the tens that were crossing the border, because it secured the border. It, 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 the biggest thing it said, uh, the, the biggest thing it said was to the people of the world, you cannot come to America illegally. We're not going to accept that. 
that perception alone, disregarding the border wall, disregarding the, the, the technology, disregarding the stay in Mexico policy, uh, disregarding the asylum issues, all that were in place, that perception to the world said, America is not open for business except through legal means. And I think that's the beauty of HR2, because we can prove that it worked already without even implementing it. And that's why it's so frustrating uh, that the Senate has not even taken it up the two times we've sent it to them. It, we know it works. But frankly, the Democrats don't want the border secured. They want this, this uh, incursion of people coming in illegally to the United States, allegedly to prop up their, their opportunities to be reelected. I don't think in the end it's going to work, but it's going to hurt our nation. Right now, right now, with all that have come in since this Biden administration took over after H.R. 2, uh, so to speak, ended, uh, rivals the largest cities in our nation, if not the states in our nation. That is not a, yeah. not a, a, a point for success. So, so I hear your I hear your call for uh, for compromise. But frankly, the American people don't want it. They want borders secured. And that's why it's number one issue that hits at my town hall meetings and others all across the country. Oh, I don't disagree. And I think now you actually have Democrats saying the same thing because they've experienced the, the consequences of this in their, <laughs> in their sanctuary, so-called yes. sanctuary cities. But I guess my question for you is, show me where there is a resolution. Because once Trump's elected, you're not going to get one Democrat vote. Assuming yeah, it feels that he like is, there's this moment is, right he's now. Like, well, we're yeah. not going to accept your bill. Well, we're not going to accept your bill. It sounds like an impasse where, once again, nothing gets done so where's where's the on-ramp to a resolution the the beauty is it's always been said of democracy our democracy is it's messiness and uh, things shouldn't happen quickly but right now we know that the laws we have in place on immigration work why because we saw them work when we secured our border we saw the immigration laws work people came across legally we, we welcomed people who right. came across legally. And so it, you're saying and just enforce the laws we have and do yeah, it strictly. Yeah. yeah I, and, it, you know, if you go back to and I hate I hate to go to the media to, to applaud, but yeah, politicians don't do that. Uh, but Nolan Finley, his interview that you did, hit it exactly on the head. We have the capability of securing our borders if we'll just do it, use the laws that are in place. Um, and and make sure that the world understands that America uh, offers opportunity, but only if we remain as America, right. a nation of laws that love people who come in for the right purposes, and that's the American idea. Well, and to your point, I mean, with a stroke of a pen, we know that much of this can be done through executive order. With a stroke of a yeah. pen, you could at least go back to remain in Mexico. And, that, and Trump that will would, do that. Yeah, that would accomplish that would accomplish. A lot. Uh, the question is, is in terms of the t- detention monies, things like that, whether you'll have support in the Congress and, and when the best moment is to do this. We just hope it's not a missed opportunity. Uh, Tim Wahlberg, thank you for your time. We'll await what happens this week in the Senate and see if it gets to you. And go Lions. Yeah, go Lions. Take care. About 10 hours from now, we're going to find out from Ford Motor Company what their earnings are for uh, the fourth quarter. We know that their sales were up a scant uh, 1%. So how does that affect the earnings and, most importantly, the North American profit sharing that so many families in our area 
rely upon. We will get that news after the market closes. Meantime, the other big automotive story is happening to our west in the Windy City. And that brings us to our topic for today's Mobility Makers. Brought to you by Bridgestone. Getting people down the road matters, but getting generations down them, that's what really matters. Bridgestone. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Let's welcome in the co-general manager of the Chicago Auto Show and co-president of the Chicago Automobile Trade Association, Dave Sloan. Dave, good morning. Good morning. They're calling for sunscreen in Detroit. That is not auto show weather here, and I I would assume that you are getting some good luck there as well. Yeah, yeah, the weather forecast looks great. Hopefully not too warm. Some days in February, it it actually gets too warm in Chicago, and it hurts our attendance. So we're hoping for a, a nice dry kind of 40s. (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, we are big auto show fans here, and we know there's healthy competition and rivalry between yours and ours. But you've got some, what I think is really exciting, not just debut production vehicles, but it's nice to see some concept vehicles coming back to the auto show. Uh, Lloyd and I had a chance to go for a test drive in the GMC Hummer EV. Wow. And we still have smiles on our faces <laughs> from that. But you've got a, a concept coming from Hummer. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's called an Overland um express vehicle it's kind of a, a an rv a, a hummer ev that's been done up to be an rv so i've already called dibs on the afternoon naps in the back uh during the day so it's a long show so we need to be ready there's but a it, kitchen isn't a, there it, yeah it's a very cool vehicle and i'm sure it's going to get a lot of uh, a lot of interest and is it basically a prototype of saying hey here's what you can power with these ev batteries i mean it's it's, it's an interesting demonstration model yeah, well, it's actually done uh, by an outside company uh, to show what uh, what a Hummer EV could become. And so, yeah, they're going to be for sale. Dave, is there uh, some new players uh, coming to the auto show in Chicago this year? <laughs> there are a couple of uh, new players, uh, one returning. Um, we have uh, Tesla and uh, Lucid at the show for the first time on our EV track. We actually have nine uh brands on our indoor ev track it's about a hundred thousand square feet and so we're going to have 27 evs running during their during the show uh giving people rides by professional drivers um and we have found that uh that really um impacts what people think and how they learn about electric vehicles um, we had a an outdoor event in the sub- suburbs in the fall and 70% of the people who came and test drove vehicles said they were more likely to buy an EV uh, based on the fact that they came and, and test drove them. So it's an important part of EV adoption just to get people, get the butts in seats. Uh, Dave, reading up on your auto show, it, I, it's saying that this is a return to normalcy, really, post-pandemic, that it's going to feel like a, a good old-fashioned auto show in a time when some auto shows aren't returning. Well, you know, we never missed a show in Chicago, believe it or not. We uh, we sort of reinvented ourselves in 2021. We, we, we got our show in just before the pandemic started in 2020. Then in 2021, we had a, a show in the summer, uh, and we did it with kind of indoor-outdoor with lots of test drives outside, and we had a street fest in the evening. And so then 2022, we had a show where everyone wore masks and uh, people showed their uh, their vaccination cards at the at the first look for charity that was kind of rough, and then last year was really a return to normalcy. But mm. so we're continuing that momentum this year, that's for sure. So help me navigate the difference between curiosity 
and real market demand. We have the auto dealers in Vegas over the weekend begging the federal government, hey, ease up on your emission standards because right now the consumer demand just isn't where you thought it would be. But then we look at what's happening at the auto show when they're pushing the EVs hard. Um, where do you see the greatest interest coming? And I realize you haven't opened up your doors yet, but in the past year, are people curious about EVs? So they're going to the test track, but are they shopping the IC stuff more? Let's hope they're shopping everything. Um, you know, give kudos to the auto industry. It's almost like they got out in front of the infrastructure, right? Everyone said auto industry, boy, they dragged their heels. Well, not in this, not in this case. They're out in front of the infrastructure. So, you know, you really have to look at the government entities, the public utilities, and say, hey, where are, where's the infrastructure for charging to make people um, feel comfortable about their vehicles? But the other part of that is um, people who drive EVs and install a level two charger in their garage at home, they're starting every day with a full tank. <laughs> and, uh and that's just a, a shift in the way you think about driving. And certainly when you go on vacation, you might need a second vehicle, a sport utility, a, a, yeah. a minivan to get the family to go down to Florida. Um, but the but, question has um, always been, what happens when that tank empties? And will I be able to find a functioning charger? And 100%. will it, how, how fast will it empty if I'm pulling a boat? You are absolutely right. So the dealers are absolutely right to challenge the Biden administration to say, hey, where's the infrastructure? Let's get this going. But, I mean, it, this really is the year of the consumer at the show. When you think about the fact that the average age of cars are, is over 12 years now. It's never been. The, our fleet has never been so old. <laughs> it tells old. you you're building them too good. <laughs> they, but there's so much pent-up demand. So many people were putting off their purchases when, when dealer lots were a little bit slim. Well, now they're full again, and incentives are back. So we're really excited to see how this show can impact uh, the uh, market in Chicago and, and the auto industry. Yeah, because usually auto show season means good deals for buyers. Yeah, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, the auto show, why do you have your Chicago auto show in February? Well, it's a great kickoff to the spring selling season. And we've always been about the consumer in Chicago and always been about just trying to rekindle the love affair of, of Americans and cars. And uh, so our main goal is to move metal. <laughs> And you could test drive. You could leave the tracks of indoors. You have an outdoor test track, too. Sure, sure, sure. So we have that indoor EV track. We've got the Bronco indoor track. Uh, we did that. Wild. Yes. Yeah, it's <laughs> spectacular. And uh, the Hyundai's got an indoor EV track. But you're right. There are s several brands who also have test drives outdoors on city streets. So Ford, Subaru, and Kia are all doing that. So we'll. it's definitely an auto show in motion. And, I mean, you think about what auto shows have become. You think about all those people who come to shows, and they all have uh, their phones with them, and they're taking pictures and yeah. videos and posting them on their social media. I mean, it's no longer that auto shows are confined, um, you know, within the walls of an exposition hall. We, we look at our show as 840,000 square feet of content that we're going to push out all year long on behalf of our uh, the automakers our exhibitors 
and we we just get so excited. I mean, you think about it, it's such a beautiful show, and people love to take pictures and record it. So um, it, it's wonderful to have all these uh, reporters, not just during the media preview, but during the public run of the show. Uh, we call it the digital lift that comes from an auto show. No, no question. And it's, it's a never ending challenge, though, to make sure that you continue to get it manufacturer support because they're finding different ways to to market their vehicles. And uh, you guys in Chicago have always done a great job of making this very consumer focused. And we're in that reinvention phase here in Detroit. So we're rooting for you because we love our auto shows here, too, Dave. Well, and we love to sell cars, so I know you're rooting for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it helps. You are the rising tide that lifts our boat, and uh, we appreciate it. Have a great show, Dave Sloan. Thank you very much. And go. Oh, what did he say? Go. There's no way he said go Lions. <laughs> did he say Vicky was a Lions? Thank you. I went to see home. I went to Michigan State University. Okay. I'm a there you go. That's what I'm talking right. about. <laughs> All right. Kings of the north. Yeah, that's boy. We've we've planted, you know, we've we've got these rabble rousers in every market around. Everywhere. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna try to undermine those whole other home teams. Uh much more to come on JR Morning when we come back. Making it rain. How utilities seeking some grace from lawmakers packed their war chest. Craig Mogger next on JR Morning at 649. Craig Craig Mauger, state government and politics reporter for the Detroit News, is always digging and uncovering things within our government. I follow him on Twitter, and many tweets make me go, hmm, like why the Republican Party spent $113,000 for computers? That was a tweet from 18 hours ago. Let's ask him about it. Craig, good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on this morning. You say they had a staff of about seven people, so 113,000 on computers is another one of those, hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the Michigan Republican Party has had so much interest among the public, among its members, in the finances of that party. There have been questions about how much money the state GOP has on hand and what they have done with the scarce resources that they do have over the weekend on Saturday, the party finally filed its federal fundraising disclosure, which showed that they had been raising some amount of money, uh, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of $160,000. Uh, they had gotten also $120,000 from presidential candidates who essentially paid the party to participate in its upcoming presidential caucus. So when you throw all that together, it's 280000 They have $180,000 in debt. And a lot of interesting expenditures, like $113,000 on computers. The party has not explained why it paid so much money for computers when it has such a small staff. And and a shrinking bank account, uh, given the most exactly. recent audits. Um, Got to ask you about uh, consumers and uh, and other utilities apparently really making it rain for a lot of our lawmakers in terms of uh, political contributions just ahead of some important important votes what did you uncover and is this raising even more angst about the timing of these things yeah i, I appreciate you uh asking about that it's a it's a wild a wild situation for people who maybe don't follow what goes on with the utilities in this state 
We have a system in Michigan that we've had for a very long time where the dominant utilities in an area essentially have a monopoly. There's a strict limit on alternative companies being able to come in and compete with those utilities, namely consumers, energy, and DTE. So there's a lot of attention paid by us and others to the uh, efforts of consumers and DTE to try to lobby and influence state lawmakers because under this system that we have, essentially the only people that can regulate what these dominant monopolistic utilities are doing are the lawmakers themselves. But we have come to find over many years here that the lawmakers that are supposed to be regulating these utilities, the office holders that are deciding whether they can raise rates or not, they are taking at times hundreds of thousands of dollars in political donations they're taking meals from the utilities and they're taking other benefits from the utilities. And it's something that deserves scrutiny by journalists and the public alike. Craig, so goes uh, state government transparency when the Michigan House leadership won't uh, release the list of guests who attended the governor's state of the state address, making the reporters like ask all the 148 lawmakers about who their visitors were. Yeah, that was something that my colleague, uh, Beth LeBlanc, and I started getting interested in trying to find out who the guests for the governor's state of the state address last month were. We have done some stories in the past that uncovered some pretty um, unsavory situations, uh, including one lawmaker who used to run a public relations firm and essentially was still running it when she was in the legislature. She was bringing one of the clients of the PR firm to be her guest for state of the state, which, you know, you might ask, why does that matter? Why does it matter who are the guests for state of the state? Because the people who get access to the House floor essentially then have access to all of the state's decision makers. And it's an opportunity for them, you know, to make their case for policies that they might want to gain inroads with the decision makers of the state. It shouldn't be too much, we don't think, for the House to hand over the list of the individuals that were allowed on the floor for the governor's speech, but the House refused to do it, and uh, here we are. We're, we're still trying to figure out who all the people were, and, and hopefully yeah. we'll be able to. And we should point out, this isn't a red and blue thing. This is all about the green, and all of them have their nose, <laughs> their snouts in the trough. On all of this, I mean, it really is a bipartisan thing. I mean, the state of the state guest list, we're interested in who the Republicans brought and who the Democrats brought. On the consumer's money, there you can see the story that we published in Monday's paper. It, there was money flowing to all sides of the aisle. Democrats got a lot more from a nonprofit that was funded by consumers in 2022. And, and why do you think that is? It's New majority. Democrats won control of government for the first time in 40 years. And, you know, they had their sights set on major reforms to state energy law, which they put in place last year. Uh, Craig, I clearly follow you on Twitter, but you were tweeting about that and someone responded, we're literally having a hearing on this, Craig. What was that about? Yeah, state, state, uh, on, on the fact that they would not release the state of the state guest list, I had asked a question in terms of there's a lot of talk in Lansing now that the legislature is getting poised to subject the governor's office and the legislature to the Freedom of Information Act, which allows the public to ask for public documents, government documents, and forces the agencies to release them. Right now, we're one of two states where the governor's office and lawmakers are exempt from that open records law. And they've said they're gonna do this. And my question was to the public, if they're not even allowed, not even willing to release the guest list 
how serious could they actually be about subjecting all of their records to transparency? Yeah. And Senator Jeremy Moss, who's a champion of this FOIA expansion, said, we're going to have a hearing on Wednesday on it. And, and they are. And we'll see what happens with the bills from there. Just one more question. And we've only got a minute, uh, Craig, and that yeah. is the, the utilities have been gifted. According to the Michigan State Public Service Commission, they want to give them 42 million in incentives to essentially do the right thing. That's getting some serious pushback. Yeah, I mean, th- th- this is going to be kind of the future of some major uh, decision making in, in state government. The Public Service Commission now is going to have so much power over the utilities, over what goes on with them for years to come, whether they're able to do a project in communities across the state or not, regardless of uh, local resistance. These three individuals are appointed by the governor, and there is going to be continuing scrutiny of how they handle these mm-hmm. these you know choices with massive repercussions. Yeah, but they're asking ratepayers to fund this incentive yeah. fund, and they're saying, "Look, we're already paying the highest among the highest rates in the nation, and you want us to reward them with more yeah. money to do something they ought to be doing in the first place." And, and there's been a string of rate increases yeah. of late as well. Craig, thank you for your digging. If you guys want to follow him on Twitter, Craig D. Mogger. Stick with us on JR Morning. One of his biggest hits was How Do You Like Me Now? And uh, with his passing, we are finding out just how many people didn't just like, but loved Toby Keith. And and sending all kinds of love to his family as he passes uh, from stomach cancer at the age of 62. There's just so many songs you know. Even if you're not a country fan, you know them. Yeah. 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 And uh, he so perfectly captured our outrage. After nine eleven, mm-hmm. um, he also always found humor in his songs. A red solo cup, beer for my horses. I mean, there was always a, an aspect of fun in his music, and he didn't take himself too seriously. And I just loved that about him. He was great. He was absolutely great. I love. How do you like me now? You know, yeah. you never gave me the time of day, and look how famous I am we, now. We've, we've yeah, and yeah. I, yeah to 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 the to those that have spurned us you know, that we had crushes on, you know, that is a little bit of gotcha that you kind of, but yeah, so we're remembering him this morning. Uh, It appears on Capitol Hill, like more and more Republicans, not just in the house, but also in the Senate are now getting weak in the knees and are um, distancing themselves from this bipartisan border bill, more or less ignoring what the doggone thing would actually do. 20 billion for border security. It ends catch and release. All of this is from the Fox news rundown expands detention capacity for families, raises the standards for asylum, fast-tracks asylum claims so they're not waiting around for 10 years, work permits for only those that are qualified, uh, $650 to expand the border wall. Uh, And yet, so much of this has been misrepresented and misconstrued by those that were willing to deep-six it before they even read the text. Senator James Lankford, who was the the guy that was the architect out there trying to get the facts out on this, and he says this would reduce entries by about 75%. In fact, the border would be closed today. 
if this was the law. No, I would do a lot more of that because this 5,000 number has been a misnomer. It's been either misunderstood or deliberately misinterpreted on it. It's not counting 5,000 people in a day. It's not like at a carnival counting in 5,000 no, people. Four, it, we're actually stop, closer to 4,000 average, right? It, it, no, it actually shuts the border down entirely. Right. So the last four months, every single day but seven in the last four months, we've had more than 5,000 people. That means every day in the last four months, we would have turned everyone around. It, it doesn't count 5,000 people in and then, and then stop after that when you hit a 5,000 you've got several weeks then that the border is closed right. to be able to regain well, bottom a line, slower no, to you, number Matt, in terms I, of all I'm just saying and it's a compliment to you I mean I, I understand where others are coming from that the numbers even allow and he's saying instead of 1 million entries we would have had 200,000 isn't that a significant decrease isn't that what we ought to be working for versus those who say wait zero Zero is the only acceptable number. Well, we've always allowed in those that have legitimate asylum Well, that's claims. part of the law. Yeah, exactly. And you can't deny asylum seekers. Exactly. But this but, new law would make the threshold higher. Right. And those that are Bill, both Bill, condemning it on the left, to me, that should tell you something. Mm -hmm. When their hair is on fire saying, well, we, we, we didn't get anything for the dreamers. No. This is about securing the border. The border. Yeah. You have to legislate. You have to get things done. You have to compromise sometimes, and you got to do what's best. This is a problem now. Well, and we heard from Tim Wahlberg earlier who said, well, I'm hearing from, you know, Americans don't want compromise. Well, they want progress. They want it to end. Yes. They want to see a meaningful decline. In, in, and, again, the border would be shut down now. And what Langford said is those, those 5,000 that would be in the system, he said, what we have here would raise the bar for them to get in, and it would accelerate the process of deporting those that don't qualify. Mm -hmm. Chip Roy say they'll just, uh, the cartels will just send 4,999. Well, <laughs> well, except that doesn't mean that those 4,999 are getting in. They still must That's go through right. a process, which will be a more difficult process. By the way, $20 billion for better walls, better tech, more agents, and the union... The Border Patrol Union supports this. The people down there support this. So the Wall Street Journal asking the question this morning, they've been no shrinking violets when it comes to being concerned and pointing out the national security implications of what's happening at the border. Said this, by any honest reckoning, and it's difficult to find one, this is the most restrictive migrant legislation in decades. Previous immigration talks have involved trading security for legalizing more immigration. There is little of that in this bill and they're asking are we more interested in solving and making progress or in allowing this festering wound to continue for political and partisan value yeah and it sounds like the latter is now dominating the discussion they're going to try to open it up to debate today we'll see if it even gets that far because mitch mcconnell in the span of a couple hours went from endorsing this to behind closed doors telling his members it's okay if you want to ditch it. Why uh, can't you do the procedural vote to debate it? You could. Why can't it, we just talk just and get things done? Yeah, and right. I, I would it's just urge all of our listeners, look at the facts behind the, the bill that's yes. out there. You can find it anywhere. Take away all of those on the left and the right in the extremes that already made up their mind before this came out. Make your own judgment about whether or not progress is – whether a a good but not perfect bill is better than nothing at all. Because right now, there's nothing that will automatically shut that border. It's still open. It's still 8 million a year. Exactly.
And by the way, Ukraine is running out of artillery and things, and this was all attached to it, that. That's such an yeah. important point to make. That and and, and for and Israel, it, yeah, as, yeah, as well. Uh, Auburn Hills police uh, guy have issued an endangered missing advisory for a one month old Eliza Prowell Smith, believed to be in her mother's custody. Eliza was last seen Friday at Bloomfield Orchard Apartments in apartment 210 near South Boulevard in Opdyke. Described as an African-American with black hair and brown eyes. They don't know what type of uh, attire she had on at the time. Eliza's mother, she's 32-year-old Amanda Prowl-Smith, reportedly assaulted a family member at the apartment with Eliza present. Amanda, who has no has no vehicle, may pose a danger to her daughter due to documented mental health concerns. Eliza was not born in a hospital. She lacks documented birth records and hasn't received medical attention. She's one month old. Mm. Previous child protective services involvement indicates two other children were removed from Amanda's care due to mental health issues. With no financial means or employment, Amanda's ability to provide for this little baby is in question. So anyone with information, just contact 911 if you know where she is, where the baby is, or you can call Auburn Hills Police. All right. That's heartbreaking. It's in oh those these cases, you just pray that they end well. Yes. That, that you find the right person. So everybody, uh, have your vigilance up. Uh, Make sure that you think of Amber and and Mm -hmm. phone in the alert if you should see this woman. Absolutely. Big question facing law enforcement officers across the state of Michigan. So many municipalities adopting EVs as a way to do the right thing by the climate. But do they make fiscal and practical sense? We will talk to uh, one of the leading law enforcement experts across the state of Michigan next on JR Morning coming up at 719. Meantime, time for WJR's Business Beat with Jeff Sloan, brought to you by Shelving.com. We rack your world. Let's take a look at the tech sector with Jeff Sloan. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Guy, Lloyd, Jamie. We've all got the big game coming up at the end of this week. That's right. It's Super Bowl time. The National Retail Federation has just come out with their report on how big a day this is for retail. And to bottom line it, it's big business. The latest consumer spending data survey found that a record 200.5 million U.S. adults plan to tune in to the big game this Sunday. This year, 112 million people plan to throw or attend a party, and another 16 million people plan to watch the game at a bar or restaurant. Now, total spending on food, drinks, apparel, decorations, and other related game day necessities are expected to reach a total, that is a record total, $17.3 billion. That's $86 per person on average. Now, as we all know, this day is much more than just about a football game. In fact, the National Retail Federation data shows that only 44% of viewers say that the game is the most important thing. 19% say the halftime performance is the most important aspect of watching the game for them, while 18% say it's the commercials. And here's the big winners when it comes to business by category. 80% of those spending on the Super Bowl will spend on food and beverage. 13% on team apparel, 9% on TVs, 8% on decorations, and 6% on furniture. Big day, big game, big business. $17.3 billion in big business, to be exact. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, the source for everything you need to start and grow your own business. And that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. With a growing interest in incorporating electric vehicles into police fleets across Michigan, some departments are cautiously exploring the feasibility of electric vehicles for law enforcement duties. 
What are the potential benefits and challenges? Let's get some insight now from Robert Stevenson. He's the executive director of the Michigan Association of Chiefs of Police. Robert, welcome to JR Morning. Thank you, Lloyd. My pleasure to be here. Uh, in your opinion, what are the main challenges that electric vehicles pose for police work, especially when you talk about uh, comparing them to traditional gas-powered vehicles? Yep. So there are some limitations uh, with today's technology, and our biggest concerns are out there is got to do with the range of the vehicles and uh, how long they can travel, uh, especially uh, an issue in some of the rural areas where it's not uncommon that someone would put several hundred miles on their vehicle during the shift. Um, there's also problems, and I don't, I don't think it's fully understood that a lot of these vehicles are used 24 hours a day. I mean, literally from shift to shift. So to take a vehicle out of service to charge it, uh, that, of course, would be a problem because a lot of departments literally do not have backup vehicles just sitting there for them to do that. Um, there's been a trend in uh, police vehicles to get larger vehicles because of all the equipment and computers that we seem to add to them. So they're, uh, a lot of them are full-size SUVs, and uh, those vehicles aren't even available right now as electric vehicles. And these vehicles literally run for 24 hours a day. Um, their heat system's on during the winter, their air conditioning's on during the summer because of the computers and stuff. So uh, all of that would uh, limit the range and the, the battery life in those vehicles. So for patrol vehicles right now, we're not seeing those uh, in Michigan, uh, but where we are starting to see some of the electric vehicles is for the administration. Uh, and where you can schedule how long a vehicle is going to be used. Mm -hmm. I, I was just going to ask, where are we in the trying out phase? So it's just administration, but they don't drive that much, right? <laughs> well, no, they don't, but detectives do and are out there. Um, there's only one vehicle right now that's been certified by the Michigan State Police electric vehicle, and uh, that's a smaller, and I believe it's the Mustang. Um, so you can imagine uh, with the computers that are in there, and then if you have to transport a prisoner, so we we just don't see them right now for patrol. Now, that could all change as the technology would increase. But many of our patrol vehicles are in service for 200,000 miles or more. Yeah. And as you know, the, the replacement costs for batteries when you wear them out are really expensive, sometimes almost as much as a vehicle. Well, that's what I wanted to ask about. First of all, I got to imagine that, the, I mean, anybody that's test-driven one of these vehicles has looked at the acceleration on them and gone, whoa. This this would be great, and I'm sure from a performance standpoint, that can be impressive to folks that have test-driven them. But as a taxpayer, Chief, I'm worried about one thing, and that's making sure you guys get the biggest bang for your buck. With EVs, there is a much larger upfront cost, and when you take away the incentives, um, they, they are very costly. And the payback is is a few years down the road in fuel savings. So how is that equation working out for municipalities? Well, budgets are tight, Guy, and that is definitely a concern, and especially when you consider how long we use a traditional vehicle to the potential limited life of the battery for an electric vehicle. And again, the, the cost of replacement would actually be prohibitive. So with the, with the current technology that is there for patrol vehicles, we're just not seeing a big push for that. Right. It's like you've got to yeah. pay 30 to 40% more for a vehicle that you can only use half as much. That's, that's definitely an issue. 
<laughs> I think I think that's probably why we're not seeing the big rush to it. And I know the suggestion out there that we all go to electric vehicles sounds good, but when you get, actually get down to the details on how we use these vehicles in patrol situation, especially, it's just not feasible right now. Yeah, might make sense for parking enforcement, but we don't need to help them. <laughs> no, well, you know I that's can't funny. charge up. I'm good with it. Well, no, you know that's 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 just funny. You say that because you know Detroit has converted their parking department over to the electric vehicle. So yeah, they're they're writing more tickets. Um, what about you were talking about the battery technology and the and the charging infrastructure? And I would think it's even uh, more of an issue in rural areas where those charging options can be limited. Sure, I mean there are places in the UP that there isn't charging for, you know, 50, 60, 70 miles or more. And uh, obviously you would have to put in charging stations at your police department. And now for some of the bigger cities, that could even be a problem because you might have to put in 30 or 40 charging stations or more. So there's a lot to be thought of before there's a, a big rush to it for patrol vehicles, especially. And what about like, you know, Lord forbid there is a chase and you have to, you know, go after a criminal who has this uh, ice vehicle that's a Dodge Charger Turbo or something. And then you guys are, you know, trying to catch this person with a EV. I mean, will, will you be able to do that? Will it have enough power to do that? I think the EVs are, are very fast. I don't think the issue is the speed. The acceleration is uh, great on those vehicles and such. I think the biggest concern would be range. And especially if you were running out of battery and on your way to the station and needed to recharge and then something happened mm-hmm. and you needed to go, you might not be able to go. And that would certainly be an issue. So you talked about only a handful of departments even trying this with their administrative vehicles only. Is there pressure to get all of the fleets electric at some point? And what is that pressure? I think the uh, biggest pressure we heard was the governor wanted everybody in the state for state government to go to electric vehicles. And I'm, um, I, I did see a quote, the state police were evaluating how that would affect them and what their options would be. So that's where the biggest pressure came from, is the governor announcing that they wanted the whole state to go to electric vehicles for the state government. Would you feel better if it was hybrids more than just uh, electric vehicles that go into well, a hybrid? Hybrids. Well, hybrid certainly uh, helps because you do have the option of having the gasoline that's there. But I think everybody just needs to understand that these vehicles are in service 24 hours a day. So even when you're not driving the vehicle, the vehicle is sitting there, the air conditioning's on, drawing down the battery. So it's not just a matter of mileage that's an issue to us. It's a matter of the vehicle being on the full time. So even when you're not driving and you're sitting, the car traditionally now is idling. But if you had an electric vehicle, of course, you're using electric battery, which is drawing down the range. Bob, this isn't why we had you on, but you know I'm going to ask you a question about it, and that is what we're watching in New York with Alvin Bragg and his so-called bail reform, releasing these cop beaters who are now on their way to California. How worried are you that that could be an outcome that we might see here in Michigan? We only have a few seconds, but I know you're good at this. <laughs> uh, the, the current uh, lack of bail is a big concern throughout the criminal justice system, and it, it's affecting us here in Michigan. In Wayne County, there's over 500,000 warrants right now with bail. How do we think that it's going to get better when we eliminate bail that people are suddenly going to show up? It is a big issue within the system and across the country, and that's just the latest incident that shows that something needs to be uh, addressed about this uh, trend 
to not taking any bail from people and just releasing them. Robert Stevenson, the executive director of the Michigan Association of Chiefs of Police. Thank you so much for being here on JR Morning. Anytime, I'd straightly my pleasure. Take uh, care. All right. And coming up at 735, Israeli and Palestinian solution, or is it a two-state delusion? It's an op-ed. We'll talk about it next on JR Morning. The one thing you hear incessantly, and it's become gospel in foreign policy circles for the past decade, is that the only way to bring peace and stability to Israel is with a quote-unquote two-state solution. The Palestinian state, where they have autonomy, and of course, the Israeli state as we now know it. Um, But that is getting some pushback now for some foreign policy minds who look at what happened October 7th and say, well, what kind of state would the Palestinians be among them, a gentleman that we think is one of the sharpest foreign policy minds out there, Elliot Abrams, who is the senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he joins us this morning on JR Morning. Elliot, good morning. Good morning. You're 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 a heretic. You're speaking against the gospel here. Um, that's everybody's yep. go-to is the two-state solution. <laughs> so why is now the two-state solution no longer a solution in your mind? You know, there's uh, new reasons and old reasons. Uh, let's take the old one. Just let me make, I'll say one word, Jerusalem. You really going to split Jerusalem again? You're going to split it in half? And where is the line going to be? Where's the border going to be? I'd ask the same question about the West Bank. Tell me where the border is exactly. You've got <clears throat> Israeli towns, Ma'ale Adumim, 40,000 people. Is that going to be in Palestine? So, these are old problems that we've talked about for a very long time and never solved. But there's a new problem, and it's really Iran. Look what they did in Gaza with Hamas. Look what they did in Lebanon with Hezbollah. Right now, the Houthis in Yemen, the day you create a Palestinian state, independent, sovereign Palestinian state in the West Bank, that's the day Iran says, wonderful. Wonderful, a new place from which to attack Israel. All of this happy talk about, well, we would just create a Palestinian state. That'll solve everything. Is is really, uh, I was going to say silly, it's irresponsible. Because people are not looking at the real problems it would create. Uh, Sir, you said in the op-ed, Palestine might be free, but no one seems to care whether Palestinians will be. You you said that we're calling for this democratic state, but it may not ever get there. Yeah, you know, it's a problem. Nobody talks about the word democracy. Uh, People say independent, sovereign, responsible, blah, blah, blah. Why don't they say democracy? Well, one reason is there is no Arab democracy. I mean, there is no Arab country, none, that is a democracy today. I think there's another reason. Polls show that if you had an election now, Palestinians would vote for Hamas. So people are afraid to let it be a democratic state. You have an election, Hamas wins, then what are you going to do? What that tells you is that Palestinians may support terrorism against Israel. They may actually favor terrorism against Israel. If that's their view, then you need a generation or two of de-radicalization. I mean, they've had generations now of being taught in textbooks, you know, this is, I'm not making this up. If there are 10 Jews and you kill seven, how many are left? That's the kind of thing. You've got schools and public squares 
and buildings named after terrorists who killed Israelis. You're going to need plenty of time to get rid of that kind of thinking. That's why people are afraid to use the word democracy right now. Elliot, there may be those out there saying, look, you're presuming the worst of these people, that they don't, that they aren't at at their core peace-loving people that just want a stable future for their children. So are we being fair in presuming that a Palestinian state would be an enemy state to Israel? I think we are being fair for two reasons. One is the opinion polls. Again, if you had an election tomorrow morning, opinion polls suggest Hamas would win. Well, there was 75 percent support for what happened on October 7th. Right. Exactly. And then throw in Iran. I mean, suppose the majority of Palestinians want peace with Israel. That doesn't mean that Iran isn't going to sneak in all the money and all the weapons it can to turn the West Bank into, well, again, what it turned Yemen into, what it turned Gaza into. They're still going around saying death to Israel, death to America. They're arming and financing every terrorist group in the Middle East. They're going to do it in the West Bank if it becomes a, an independent sovereign state. They can't do it much now because Israel is in control of the security. You change that and they will just roll up their sleeves and say, terrific, another place to attack Israel from. Um, the Secretary Anthony Blinken is headed to the Mideast for another crisis tour, uh, basically to secure a new truce for the, the war. Um, your thoughts on the diplomatic solutions and how the president and White House play into that? Well, everybody's trying to get an immediate ceasefire for a while to get the hostages out. And of course, we all want the hostages out. Um, I think it'd be a mistake, though, to say to Israel, stop the war completely. Don't pull all your people out. Don't do anything else. Because then Hamas survives. And if Hamas survives, they win. I mean, this is really about whether Hamas is going to be able to survive in Gaza, come back, and, and threaten Israel. If you stop the war permanently tomorrow morning, Hamas survives. And survival is a victory for them and for Iran. Mm-hmm. If, what, if not a two-state solution, and the Biden administration still wants to sing out of that hymnal because I guess old habits are hard to break, what is the solution? What would work? What could you offer them if you were advising them as an alternative? Yeah, you know the problem with you is you're an American. And we all want solutions, right? We, we see a problem, we want to fix it. This one may not be so easy to fix. I mean, it's taken decades and decades. I would say, look, um, this is not the time to talk about an independent, sovereign Palestinian state. It is the time to talk about improving Palestinian uh, governance, improving the Palestinian authority, which is incredibly unpopular, incredibly corrupt, incredibly incompetent. So let's fix that first. We can talk about a Palestinian state, you know, someday, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Uh, but it's it's a delusion, as I said in the article I wrote, to think about it happening now, happening soon. If you want my answer, my answer is there would be a Palestinian, let's call it entity, and it would be in confederation with Jordan. I mean, if you look at the geography, it's got to mm-hmm. be Jordan or Israel. And the logic is, why would you have a confederation with a Jewish Hebrew-speaking state 
instead of an Arab Muslim Arabic speaking state. It just makes more sense. But that's way, I think, way down the road. Start with trying to fix the Palestinian Authority and get some kind of decent uh, governance in there. Uh, sir, just briefly here at the end of our interview, the Houthis strike again, undeterred by the U.S. retaliatory strikes. What's next? I think we have to keep it up. I think what um, the president and others in the administration have said, that this is just the beginning, that has to be true. Um, they, they just need to keep, you know, they, they have a finite number of weapons, of missiles, of rockets. We just need to keep hitting them until they stop. And if need be, at some point, we're going to have to punish Iran for this. Because the origin of this mm-hmm. is Iran. And they're not being punished. They're not paying any price. I'm not talking about World War III. I'm not talking about bombing Tehran. But they are going to have to pay some kind of How about of taking out a refinery, Elliot? Well, that is the kind of thing we, we need to think about. And we need to tell the Iranians, that's down the road here if you guys don't stop this. You can start with smaller targets just to tell them you're serious. You know, there's what we call a ladder of escalation. And you can start on the bottom of it. But uh, the Iranians have to send them a message. Guys, it's over. The Americans have uh, awakened. Yeah. Always a pleasure talking to you, Elliot. It's called the two-state delusion. It is a thoughtful look at this. I'd love your your alternative and the notion of having an Arab-speaking state be the linchpin in this. Uh, It makes just too much sense. And you're right. We all are all looking for solutions. Elliot Abrams, thanks again. You're welcome. When we come back, the shocking revelation yesterday that King Charles has cancer. Uh, What does that mean in terms of his duties, in terms of his family? Is this going to be, in some ways, a bridge to rebuilding relations with Harry? It's next on JR Morning. This winter's weather has definitely been something, hasn't it? Today we we heard from uh, our meteorologist that we should think about sunglasses and sunscreen. We also know it wasn't long ago that we needed four layers. Uh, Although temps may be milder right now, I think we all know we're going to see them back down again before spring is here in earnest. And something I want to remind you is you've got a furnace breakdown. It isn't just inconvenient. It's unsafe. And that's why my friends at CNC Heating and Air Conditioning are there on guard for you 24 hours a day to respond to your emergency calls. They've been doing this for 75 years, and they've had a winning strategy making sure that your family is treated the way the Corian family would like to be treated, the folks that run CNC Heating and Air Conditioning. It's how they've become one of the most trusted outfits out there and are referred by our inside-outside guys. Uh, They know that they can repair it today, and if they can't, they can install a new one tomorrow. That's the level of quickness and customer service and the motto that they have and their promise to you. Right now, there's a carrier cool cash savings event underway that can save you money if you need a new carrier system. It starts with a very simple phone call, 800-MY-FURNACE, 800-693-8762. Get the free 21-point comfort survey. And if you do need installation of a new carrier heating and cooling system, they can get it for you tomorrow. Visit cncheat.com. That's cncheat.com. Don't leave it to chance. Call carrier. Turn to the experts. 
18 months after assuming the throne, there's shocking news from Great Britain that King Charles has been diagnosed with cancer and he'll be stepping back from public duties for the time being. Let's bring in WJR senior news analyst Marie Osborne with all the latest. Marie, good morning. Are you in London? Uh, I only wish, right? I've got my passport, will travel. I'll sit outside that palace. (laughs) Um, As you guys know, uh, King Charles, as you said, been on the throne for about 18 months or so. He is 75. This news coming from Buckingham Palace in a formal announcement. It said the cancer was found during his treatment last week for a benign condition, which was an enlarged prostate. The royal, uh, royal source telling CNN the cancer was detected not in the prostate, but no other information was uh, known on that right now. It is common practice for tests like blood work, chest x-rays, to be conducted when patients are admitted to the hospital, sometimes even an MRI. But again, it is not known if that's how this additional issue was discovered. The palace says doctors have advised the king to postpone all of his public-facing duties, but they do say he will continue to undertake state business like official paperwork as usual. He was last seen on Sunday attending church with uh, his Uh, wife, the Queen, Camilla. The King spoke to both of his sons, William and Harry, about the diagnosis. Harry, who's had a public falling out with the royal family and has stepped back from royal duties, is expected to be traveling to the UK in the next couple of days. This is the latest chapter in several health crises for the royal family. Princess Kate was admitted to the hospital last month for abdominal surgery. She was in the hospital for almost two weeks. Sarah Ferguson, Duchess of York, diagnosed with a malignant melanoma, an aggressive form of skin cancer last month, and she had had a breast cancer diagnosis before that. This story making international headlines, as all of us know, Britain's political leaders are weighing in. Uh, Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, saying that he's wishing his majesty a full recovery. And interestingly enough, in an interview this morning, he did give one bit of information that is, uh, again, making headlines in that he said it was caught early. So, you know, that is more than we learned from this palace statement. So, Uh, Does that mean that they're hopeful for treatment? We don't know. And, of course, uh, guys, President Biden uh, sending his well wishes to King Charles today. I'm hoping, uh, Marie, that, you know, this crisis that's going on will bring the family together with all of what's been going on with the royal family, that uh, somehow that this will bring them together because you just hate to see this this, uh, separation. Isn't that the truth? You know, we all know all families have something right yeah, and so yeah. but when it plays out in public like this it's just so heartbreaking and i think sometimes the true test of a the real bones of a family is when something like this happens if you can put everything aside and come together um that shows that you know you really have heart i think to fix the problem and maybe that's what's going to happen here we really don't know now if you're wondering um s- some people wondering what happens if he becomes too ill to carry out his duties well there are people that are called counselors of state counselors of state and he could ask one or more of those people to take over and the counselors of state right now are Camilla William Harry Princess Anne Prince Edward, Prince Andrew, and Princess Beatrice. So 
he could ask them to to uh, step mm. in for him temporarily. And if he can't carry out his constitutional duties or function properly, then um, his powers could be withdrawn. And that's under a 1937 law. And then, of course, the, the next in line would be Prince William. You know what's odd about this, though? The, the royal family in the past has been, maybe it was more of a Diana thing, but it's been pretty good about being open about some of their travails. It humanizes them. Mm -hmm. It also allows them to raise awareness. And the fact that they're keeping the nature of his cancer a secret, I find kind of But yet they say the fact that they're saying it at all is raising awareness, but... I I suppose, but, you know, there was obviously there's become a cottage industry of um, speculating what it may be. And it is interesting that this is a cancer that can be treated on an outpatient basis. There aren't many cancers that fall under that heading and i did hear from one of the fox medical analysts yesterday saying this it isn't uncommon that with enlarged prostate and prostate exams that you find bladder issues and bladder cancer which is one of the few that can be treated on an outpatient basis so it's kind of interesting i just i think that he could raise awareness of these things yeah thinking it's specific right. cancer yeah. right Right. But I also think I um, just to piggyback on what you said there, I also think at this level, um, when you're the king, uh, sometimes I think treatment can come to you that maybe for the rest of us wouldn't be available. I I just I couldn't help but wonder about that Mm -hmm. if if he isn't able, you know, that he doesn't have to go to the hospital. Let's say if he was getting radiation or chemo, that he wouldn't have to, you know, do that, go to the hospital, that maybe they could bring it to him. So He comes from um, strong stock. I mean, mom and dad lasted well into their (laughs) mid-90s and thrived. It would be such a shame that he waited his whole life to be king, and he finally becomes king, and then he has this serious ailment. Absolutely. I was thinking the very same thing yesterday, Jamie. My gosh, you wait 70 years to do the job you feel you you were called for, and then to have this happen. But you know what? That's life, right? Um, and mm-hmm. sometimes it throws us a curveball that we're just not expecting. But, um, you know, he uh, this is all they're going to say for now. But, you know, those tabloids in, in uh, London are they're probably doing some dumpers, dumpster diving this morning, <laughs> trying to get some yeah. documents oh, or trying to Lord. find something. Right. Yeah. Probably some dumpers. too. They're looking, yeah. they're yeah. looking for imagine? they're looking for leakers. Yes. Yeah. Can you yeah. imagine? Well, Marie, coming from someone who wakes up at four in the morning to watch the weddings and stuff, this is very interesting to me. Thank you for your report. Me too, Jamie. Next time we'll do watch party together. Okay, yes, with mimosas. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Thanks, Marie. Thanks, guys. It's a date. I got something for you guys. The scam from hell. This is crazy. They're not identifying the company, but a a Hong Kong-based guy was ordered into a private web conference with all of his superiors there were about a dozen people on this conference call all of them were deep fakes oh my all of them the entire conference call was a sham and it ended up costing the company 25 million dollars because he believed them and he did what they asked he transferred the money oh we'll be back oh bring Bring it. Bring the whiskey for the guys and the beer for the horses and raise a glass to Toby. Uh, there's just an outpouring of love. Been checking all the, the feeds here and the networks and just an outpouring of love for Toby Keith, who we lost at 62. And um, That's so young. If we were to open the WJR Karaoke Club right now, just setting aside the fact that we'd drive listeners off the road, <laughs> what Toby Keith song would you select uh should have been a cowboy 
I think, and doesn't it make you want to be one when you hear Absolutely. that song? Absolutely. Yes. I want a sidekick with a funny name. <laughs> yeah. I've been saying, how do you like me now all morning? I like that one. Yeah. It's it's catchy, and I think we've all felt like that. You know, those that wanted to knock you down, once you've accomplished something, you go, hey, yeah. yeah, I didn't let you beat me. Nick's a fan. He is. Yeah, as good as I once was, uh, American Rides a, a great. You're song not old too. enough for good as I once was to resonate with you. <laughs> Come on, we all, but, but you know all of his songs. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just there's Hope on the so rocks. Many, I mean, when you make a song about a red, yeah. uh, the red solo cup. I mean, which know. is and or the one that I still think of is <laughs> I love this bar. <laughs> also a great one. You know. Um, <laughs> So good stuff. And Toby, we're going to be listening to you all day and uh, loving every minute of it. It's a rare thing when you see institutions go, and eh, we screwed up. It seemed like a good idea at the time, but we're not going to do that anymore. And that's what's happening on the nation's campus. As we remember during COVID, they all said it's unfair for us to use SATs and ACT standardized tests for admissions. Well, now Dartmouth, as of yesterday, said, yeah, we're going to require those that are trying to enroll to submit SATs and ACTs. It's no longer an option. Why? Because they did an extraordinary thing. They said, we've got this cool economics department. Let's ask them whether this was a good idea or not. And you know what they came back and said? Not only was it dumb, not only is it one of the best predictors of success at Dartmouth, but also by, by uh, discouraging it, you're hurting the very low-income students you thought you were helping. Yep. I say yes to this as a person who had to take the SAT and everything to get into school. Other than just wanting students to have the same misery that you had. Well, it's kind of a little bit of both. <laughs> but, yeah, I just it's so rare that you've got institutions that actually reevaluate and say, yeah, this was not a good idea. Dartmouth is doing it. Other schools are considering it. And I've, I can see a trend developing here. The other one is J.P. Morgan is going to announce today that it is doubling down on building more brick-and-mortar branches. They have discovered that the best growth strategy isn't just to say, well, we're going to close things because everybody's going digital. Everybody is going with the mobile app. No, people still want a bank that they can go to and a relationship that's a real relationship and uh, so they're going to announce today 500 new branches in different states. They already have a big footprint here in Michigan. Oh, yeah. But mm-hmm. is, is, do you consider this a good trend or are you all mobile? I, I like this. I like to walk in every so often. So do I. I. I am, you know, I like to go into my bank. I know my tellers and I know the people who work in there. They know me and I, I just, you know. I was applying for something the other day where it's a, it's a direct deposit thing. And they asked for an address for my bank and I went, I don't know because the two that I used are closed. I have no idea what my nearest bank branch is anymore. You just I give had to, your account and I had to wire. Yeah, normally, I give yeah. them the routing number and yeah, all that. There you, there you go. But yeah, good on J.P. Morgan. Uh, they have said 500 new branches in the next three years. That's what they're going to announce today. There's only 17 banks that have more than 500 branches today. J.P. has 5,000. So if you want wow. that level of service, that's and, and I also think younger people are looking for that. Uh, as well. Just an interesting thing. Brad, speaking of investing, Brad Holmes saying we're not even close to being done. No, and actually he took umbrage with people who thought that this was maybe just a one-off. Let's hear from Brad. What I want to tell really our fans is, look, it's only going to get better, okay? 
we're only going to get better, all right? I don't want anybody to think that this was a, a one-shot Cinderella magical journey that just happened. No, it's real, all right? This, was, this is exactly what it was supposed to happen. And I understand that based on history, from what's happened in the past, like I understand you have a season like this, it's easy to feel like this was kind of a a one-shot, magical, lucky, uh, cute story, which I'm tired of hearing. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, was, it was none of that. It's Not cute. He said hmm. they're trying to be a perennial winner. And he also was kind of hot coming in. He called out different reporters who didn't like his draft picks from 2021. He pointed to one and said, you wanted us to pick a quarterback, not Panay Sewell. He said to another one about Ify Melifonwo. I know you said that was a miss. And he's like, I'm just looking for accountability from you guys. That was something else. Um, So he was just having some fun with the media. Obviously, he's been hitting on a lot of draft picks, and we'll see what he could do in the future. Uh, Sheila Fordham sent a letter to the fans thanking them. Yeah, and just a little portion of it. She said the success of this season is what that vision looked like, her initial vision. Now we must go about making late January football a constant in Detroit. She said the future looks bright. And she says, please accept a personal thank you from myself and my family for supporting us throughout this season. Wow. Well, she goes on to say the NFL is nothing without the fan base. Right. We, we're out of business. It's not. Yes. And it's about delivering the best product for the fans and that that's and look their at our mission. fans who traveled everywhere. Isn't it amazing <laughs> to see spent our team? a ton of money. Yes. She and says then, training camp starts <clears throat> in 175 days. I can't wait. 174. <laughs> yep. She released that yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> We're counting down too. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, we saw some interesting questions coming from the Crumbly jury yesterday, Lloyd. Yeah, uh, deliberations began yesterday in the Jennifer Crumbly involuntary manslaughter trial. After jury instructions, five alternates were chosen for sequestration. The remaining 12 jurors started deliberating, raising questions about the prosecution's theories and the acquisition of the gun used in the shooting. Among other questions raised was whether they could infer reasons for the shooter's absence from the stand. Now, as deliberations unfolded, uh, many Oxford families uh, anxiously awaited the jury's decision. Despite hours of deliberation, no verdict reached yesterday. They will reconvene this morning. Three alternate jurors uh, were chosen to remain sequestered at home. Uh, it seems like to me, Guy, that the jurors wanted to know why the shooter uh, was not on the stand. And, you know, that's something that I, I, they, that wasn't in this trial, so you can't, you can't uh, deal with that. Yeah, I mean, it's very normal for a jury to say, and why would we, they we want more that? information. Yeah. You know, we, we want to know, how did he get the gun? Because they want to know whether to blame Mr. Crumbly or Mrs. Crumbly. Mm-hmm. The bottom line is both of them share responsibility for what's in that home and for that weapon. And, and But it, it certainly sounds like it, when they asked about the different definitions of involuntary mm-hmm. manslaughter... They're saying, look, we know what destination we want to get to. Does that mean we have to take the same road? And the judge said no. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, there's two different pathways to get there. And I don't know. The fact that they're taking a couple days and asking questions, is that better for defense or prosecution? We'll wait and see. Yeah, and uh, another day today, and they're probably already, I think they begin deliberations in about 15 minutes. It, before we get to break in the last segment, we were talking about these these scammers at this unnamed company. Uh, that set up a conference call with a a member of the company that had access to the money and transferring it, that there were a number of people in the conference call, none of them were real. 
The only real guy was the guy getting scammed and ended up costing the business $25 million. The FBI is issuing a warning that this deep fake stuff is for real. And you made a very interesting point. I don't know where I read this or saw this, but within your own family, you know how there are these scams where they'll mm-hmm. say, your daughter's in trouble, you have to send her money. And I know my mom would be like, sure, where does it go? Well, yep. Let me help her. Yeah. You guys can come up with a safe word or uh, you know, a word that you all know, that's your family word, whatever it is, like yep. as George Costanza would say, tippy-toe. Mm-hmm. And if the scammer doesn't know that word, that's not your family member. Yep. We all have uh, that word. We have a word in my family, my brothers, my sisters, they all have a word. Is it BS? <laughs> <laughs> well, he can't tell you the word. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Silly me. Yeah, somebody calling you and saying, yeah, yeah, but BS. Um, I think that's just a brilliant idea because this stuff is for real, and we're seeing it happen to everyday people, and it, the, the outcomes are just so frightening. Yeah, and it's happening to you know me and you, but now look at that company. Yeah, they just lost $25 million. Yeah, and not one of the people in the conference call was real. Yet, they they had the faces up, right? That's how good they are. That's crazy. At this. It was a test on online that they, it would show you a real person and an AI-generated person. And I just I just failed all of that. <laughs> I, kept, yeah. I kept saying, oh, that's real. Nope, AI. Mm. Nope, that, it, it looks so real. Well, there's uh, some other things that are real. ADHD. Um, Some say it's overdiagnosed. Others saying it's not diagnosed nearly enough, especially when it comes to young women. Is there a gender bias when it comes to ADHD? We'll be exploring that with our friends from Henry Ford next on JR Morning at 819. About 50% of homes in Michigan have basements, and something that we all hope works properly when it rains is that sump pump. I had Ron Alexander from Shelby Mechanical out to my house, and our basement has flooded a couple times. He also told me some horror stories of flooded basements that they've seen, and something he recommends is getting a backup sump pump installed. Shelby Mechanical is the best when it comes to sump pump installation and service. And with the wild winter weather we've had and possibly wet spring to come, now is the time to get that backup installed. From running toilets to leaky pipes, low water pressure, damaged outdoor plumbing, clogged drains, sump pump, and water heater malfunctions, Shelby Mechanical can handle it all. Keep your home dry with a Shelby Mechanical backup sump pump. Call 586-726-9444. That's 586-726-9444. Or visit shelbymechanical.net. That's shelbymechanical.net. For projects big and small, you know who to call. Shelby Mechanical for all your plumbing needs. Many women are in their late 30s or early 40s before they are diagnosed with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder or ADHD. But you don't just develop ADHD as an adult. Women are simply realizing it and recognizing it later on in life. To talk about this phenomenon, let's bring in Dr. Lisa McLean, Henry Ford Health Psychiatrist. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. So what is happening here that women are not getting diagnosed early? What we do know is that boys are about three times more likely than girls to receive the diagnosis. And um, typically we believe that's the case because the symptoms can be more subtle and harder to recognize in girls. Uh, Girls are more likely, I think, to have more inattentive behaviors versus the hyperactivity-type behaviors that we oftentimes see in boys. 
Um, so that that's what I think where we're seeing that disparity. So are you seeing, doctor, that women are, are sometimes they, they get diagnosed with, with things other than ADHD, like mood disorders and anxiety and those type of things that kind of mimic? Not necessarily. I think it can go completely unrecognized, where a girl might just be more energetic and talkative and people just think she's highly social, mm-hmm. but really she's not attending. She's distracted and forgetful and um, you know, speaking without thinking, and this is, this is impacting her in her social relationships, but it goes completely unnoticed in terms of there being really an underlying treatable condition that might be contributing to her struggle because oftentimes that can be linked to I'm struggling in school or I'm struggling to maintain a job or I'm struggling to keep mm-hmm. my, my home neat and clean. Um, all of those things can be a sign that there really is kind of this underlying inattention that's preventing you from having focus when you need it. So this delayed diagnosis, what are the long-term consequences of that? Are they in for lack of a better term, a deeper hole or in a more difficult place in their 30s or 40s as a Definitely. result? And and what are they missing out on in those ensuing years when they could have been getting treated? That's a, that's a great question. And I, I think there, that certainly there can be a negative impact both on self-esteem and then those other conditions that you mentioned. I think untreated ADHD can put these women at greater risk for developing depression, anxiety, and eating disorders late in life. But we also see that these patients with untreated ADHD can have other, um, can impact their life in a more general way. We can see difficulty in maybe maintaining relationships, difficulty finding a career path and succeeding at work. And, and then blaming themselves when they, ha- when they continue to really have a tough time. So if you're an adult woman now and you've never been diagnosed with ADHD, but you're starting to think maybe, what do you, what do, you do? What do you look for? Um, I, I think you're going to look for um, problems with focus and attention, problems maybe uh, being effective at your job. You may notice some things like, I have the money, but I forget to pay my bills. Um, My house is a mess. My family tells me, or my spouse or my significant other tells me, I told you that before, weren't you listening? Or I've had to tell you this repeatedly because they're not really, um, since they weren't paying attention the first time, they don't remember someone having told them something. So it can really negatively impact the interactions that they have with the people in their lives. Uh, Sorry, Lloyd, but conversely for a younger girl, you know, I have a little girl growing up. What do we look for with the younger girls? Um, You're going to be looking for, I think, more struggle in school, struggle with maintaining relationships with others uh, in school. Um, You may feel like they have the ability, uh, but it's just something, some ingredient is missing, and you're really seeing that they're um, they're they're not meeting their potential in an academic way and in a social way. And, and, and Dr. Ken, this uh, ADHD diagnosis, can it really like affect the whole family since, you know, women are typically in charge of caring for the home and for the kids? Absolutely. And what we also see is that one of the things that happens is that women come to treatment after their kids get diagnosed with ADHD because 
they now, you know, they're seeing their child struggle, and then when they go for that diagnostic evaluation, they're like, oh, my gosh, that sounds like me, that I see myself in these symptoms that my child is displaying. So that mom coming for treatment can be really critical, not only in helping them role model um, what treatment can look like, uh, for their child, but also getting really a better handle on organizing their lives and their families. Why is this topic on the forefront right now? Are you seeing more diagnoses with older women? Not necessarily. I think it probably came to the forefront during the pandemic where mm-hmm. um, we were really you know, forcing people to be in uh, situations that they had not previously been in in terms of working remote. Um, so I think that that's really kind of blew the lid off a little bit uh, in terms of uh, increased diagnosis of this condition because I think people found that it was really hard to focus and concentrate, especially mm. when they were trying to work from a desk all day, every day. Mm, got it. Okay, this was a very important topic, and I would assume you contact your PCP if you'd like some further help, correct? Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Dr. Lisa McLean, Henry Ford Health Psychiatrist. Thank you for your time this morning. And I think a lot of women listening might, I don't know, think twice or call your PCP if you do. Right. Raise the question. Yeah. Because a lot of times women don't talk about themselves and their own health um, journeys. So coming up, uh, Lloyd has a story about affordability. Correct, water, Lloyd? Water affordability. Yes. You're going to not want to miss that. Also a favorite theater that may be going away and... We've got breaking news from London uh, regarding Prince Charles and his cancer diagnosis. We'll get to all of it next on JR Morning. The Daily Mail just breaking the news that Prince Harry has landed. He's already in London. He wasted no he time quick. getting out of California. He was uh, spotted at LAX at some point, so you knew he was about Yeah, to. it's, I guess, an 11-hour flight, something like that. So it, what is that? Does that tell you that maybe this thing's much more serious or that he just wanted to be there, that he heard the news and needed to see his dad? Yeah. I think it's good news for the family mm-hmm. that he is there right now. Whether it shows he was worried or it's more serious or that he just wants to be with his dad, I want this family back together. And it gives them time to make it happen. Yeah. He, well, he jumped on the first available. He sure did. Uh, no no question about that. Uh, British Airways only has a couple flights out of L.A. that are direct, and he got on the earliest one. And um, leaving the Duchess of Sussex and Archie and Lilibet uh, behind. Uh, and <clears throat> Is he not which, flying private? I mean... Is, is there no... This is what happens when you... When, <laughs> when you you're dropped by yeah, the royal you're family. You're not with the yeah. royal family. Or you, you, you excise yourself from if them. If you're HRH, Connections. you yeah. get private. When you're not... Yep. He's got to be in first class. Nick though. wants to know whether or not he even made first class, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. The, 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 I don't know if the podcast delivered that kind of cash. I but. would not be cool. If I saw him on my plane, I would be very... Intrusive and go talk to him. Okay. okay, exactly. What would you say? I'd just be like, I read your book. I love the royal family. I wake up at 4 a.m. What can you tell me? Do you call him your royal highness or is he Harry? Oh. You don't call him, I'd, don't call him Spare. He doesn't I'd call like him that. Prince Harry. 
Okay. I would be very intrusive. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know that we're working with a stalker, Lloyd. <laughs> right. Only a royal things. stalker. The royals, though. Oh, <laughs> things we keep learning about oh, each other. The endless discoveries. <laughs> um, some uh, interesting stories coming out about this ongoing concern about water affordability. A so, definition that it, it's a right, not mm-hmm. an expense. Uh, and there's some new moves being made in that regard. Southeast Michigan lawmakers, they united mm-hmm. yesterday in a push for a water affordability bill progressing through Lansing. The proposed legislation aims to limit water bills to 3% of household income and introduce a $2 monthly fee to establish a fund aiding those unable to afford bills. Advocates argue it's a vital step towards state Wide water affordability support. State Senator Stephanie Chang introduced the bill. The statewide water affordability legislation is not only the moral thing to do for Michiganders who are struggling to make ends meet, it is also the smart thing to do for the financial stability of our water systems, and it's the right thing to do to protect our public health. Addressing the challenge of unpaid bills, Chang noted the potential for reduced fees as arrearages are settled and households receive necessary assistance. However, not all are in favor. James Holman from the Mackinac Policy Center questioned the necessity of additional fees, suggesting existing welfare programs should suffice. Mayor Mike Duggan stressing the urgency, urging swift action as federal aid delays persist. He said we were promised money from the feds, but it's, it's not it has been forthcoming. No. Yeah, we had the Macomb official right saying this is unnecessary. Uh, yeah, we uh, it was um, Candace, right? Candace yeah. Miller mm-hmm. saying that this is yeah foisting unnecessary expenses on the on the ratepayers mm-hmm. to do this. Uh, we were talking earlier in a segment about uh, ADHD diagnoses for women. Want to get your take on this? We talked during the Kevorkian era about embracing the idea of medically assisted suicide here in the state of Michigan to help mm-hmm. people who were terminally ill in incurable pain and helping them end their suffering. Over the weekend, they ended the life. They being with medical help, a young woman, twenty-eight years old, not chronically ill with cancer, not terminal, not suffering from incurable pain. Here in the States? This is in the Netherlands, in the Netherlands. where this is okay. legal. She had chronic fatigue syndrome. She had autism. And she had ADHD. So a number of her issues and problems were not necessarily physical in nature, but to some degree psychological or um, you know, based in something other than what we would think of as being kind of the standard for... Uh, medically assisted end of death or medical assistance in death. They call Mm -hmm. it made there, medical Mm -hmm. assistance in death. Isn't that the very slippery slope argument that they've they've been warning us about for 20 years, that if you start to end the lives of the terminally ill, well, next it's going to be, you know, they're going to be, the mentally ill are going to be accessing this. And they acknowledge that she did have also diagnosed mental illness as well, but that didn't matter. Her family said, look, her suffering was real it was no different than someone suffering from cancer. Therefore, we wanted to help. Whether her it was in her mind or not, she was still she suffering. She was still suffering, and she was <clears throat> had some mental deficiencies, but able to make this decision on her own. The, the mental deficiencies were not cognitive or anything mm. like that. It was mm. more. It was this this chronic fatigue, which left her probably to some degree incapacitated because mm. you're exhausted. But she also had ADHD. She was. You know, uh, had autism as well. Twenty eight, but twenty eight years old. <laughs> yeah, 
And I have a problem with this, but I don't know how to voice what I'm feeling right now. It's too young to do this. Don't you think? Well, yeah. And that is it. And, you know, her has family every- is saying we exhausted everything. Well, yeah, that's what I want to know. Has everything been done to try to alleviate well, and you, you beg the question, is there going to be a psychotropic drug that can help with... I mean, how long do you ask someone to suffer until we can get to a treatment? And how young is it going to get now? She was 28, but let's say the person was 21 or 22 and was going through the same thing. And not that it matters, but she's also adorable. And she's just got this... When you see her, she's got this... this there's a light in her eyes and a smiling, but they said, well, this is on one of her good days. Right. Mm-hmm. Perhaps that light was um, not there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, but I got to tell you, I spent a week in the Netherlands 30 years ago talking to families who had done this with their relatives. But each one of them was elderly and had an incurable disease that they could not remedy with painkillers. They were people who could not find relief mm-hmm. from their suffering. That is different. And there was no psychological component. It wasn't that it wasn't I'm depressed because I'm suffering. Right. Uh, and they had very high standards then for that. This young lady would not have qualified, at least under what I learned in my time over there. And, and well, things have changed since, yeah. as far as this is concerned, assisted it's, suicide over in the Netherlands. It's kind of an astonishing uh, thing uh, that it, it seems to be. And I understand suffering is suffering. And uh, they gave her the, will, the the ability to make this decision for herself with her parents blessing. Here's another thing. They're going to be debating this in the uh, House tomorrow. A $5,000 tax credit if you donate an organ. So, and and the first, when I first heard this, I thought, oh man, that's too much like buying an organ. Mm. Um, that if, if you were to need a, a kidney, mm-hmm. and I'm going to give it to you, I could write it off my taxes. I could take a $5,000 credit for doing something right. I, I don't know if this is and I thought, it's really, are we going to try to incentivize everything? But well, then I seems thought, that way. You got in, the caretaker credit, too, that is being proposed that you get right. a $5,000 credit if you're taking care of your uh, elderly, you know, parent or sibling. It's a two page bill. You got to get to the very end of it to kind of cut to the chase. But it says the expenses that they're trying to mitigate here are loss of time at work, lost wages, the kinds of things that you aren't going to be compensated for under our current organ donor process. Mm -hmm. And so they're saying, yeah, if you're someone that's doing the right thing, it can be very costly because it's time off work. You do need medical care. You're going to need some long-term care perhaps. And some of those things will be covered, but a lot of it won't be like lost wages and work. So we're willing as the state of Michigan to at least try to mitigate those circumstances. That may be kind of changed. It seemed a little less smarmy. Yeah, um, when you say it like that, this seems like a, a way for more people to help others, mm-hmm. perhaps. Yeah, and I mean... Uh, and maybe you know, more people to come forward. One would hope. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, it's. I know it's on my license, and I know my wife knows what my wishes are. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, but that would be... Yeah. Live organ donors, this, this is a different thing. Right. And this would be the, you know, the, the, the liver, the kidney... Uh, not the kind of things that we'd put on our license. But an interesting bill that's going to be debated in the House, or at least uh, called up, I think, tomorrow. You're on JR Morning. When we come back, we're going to be checking in with uh, what the Lions GM had to say. The encouraging words and some of the fun he had at the expense of his naysayers and the armchair GMs out there. It's next on JR Morning at 849. 
want to thank our players, um, just everything that they had to put into it, their sacrifices, uh, what they had to do to get ready on a regular basis. If you know, you... Uh, I have the utmost respect and appreciation for what they do. And I told them, I'll tell you all, I'll tell everybody, that was a, uh, that's a special group, special group in that locker room. And uh, much appreciation for them. If you caught General Manager Brad Holmes' press conference yesterday, you know there's plenty to unpack. Uh, Holmes, he, he kicked off the session with a powerful message to the Lions fans, urging them to stay the course and keep faith in the transformative process underway. And with the team's rapid uh, evolution under Holmes' Dan Campbell, well, let me tell you, it's an exciting time to be a Lions fan. Let's pull in WJR Senior Sports Analyst. Steve Courtney to get his take on yesterday's presser. Steve Arino, good morning. Good morning, Lloyd. Hello again, everyone. This conversation brought to you by the Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. Performance Remodeling, a preferred partner of the Inside Outside Guys, kicked off. Yes, another $100,000 window of opportunity sweepstakes. Request your Windows Roofing and Siding quote today. Log into windowsroofingsiding.com to enter the Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. Yeah, it was interesting uh, in his end-of-season uh, review, Lions General Manager Brad Holmes spent the first 11 minutes lauding the Lions fan base, referring to them as the best fan base in the world, hands down. I don't care what anybody says, any sport. And uh, Lloyd, Jamie, Guy, uh, you just heard Brad go on about this team. Interesting to note, the Lions have 18 of the 22 players that started in the NFC Championship game under contract for 2024. Now, he does have some decisions to make, certainly. Uh, Long-term extensions. Quarterback Jared Goff, uh, one of the premier wide receivers in the league, Amal Ross St. Brown, and uh, maybe a few more. Uh, let the records indicate that their powerful right tackle, Penny Sewell, has a fifth-year option, uh, fifth-year team option that will no doubt be exercised. Uh, there are some potential issues looming uh, with the big uglies up front. We know uh, that for the last few years, the Lions have sported one of the best offensive lines in the National Football League. Uh, but it's interesting to point out their Pro Bowl center, Frank Ragnow, uh, made some cryptic comments at the end of the season. Uh, the quote, I'm just going to take some time and really figure everything out to make sure I'm feeling good, not only for me, the football player, but for me to be the best husband and best father and everything with that as well. Uh, that being said, uh, you also have starting guards Jonah Jackson and Graham Glasgow. Both are headed for unrestricted free agency. So uh, some decisions to be made. Hopefully Rags, the warrior, uh, decides to come back. But look, uh, he did mention uh, that between the toe, the ankle, the knee, I'm not done. The back, um, things take its toll. So he's going to take some time. I thought you were going to break into song there. The, 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 the toe bones connected <laughs> to the ankle bone. Uh, yeah. Steve, what about the portion where he called out reporters by name and he's like, hey, remember when you said the Panay Sewell pick wasn't a good one or the Iffy pick or the St. Brown pick? Yeah, uh, look, um, you know, he also – uh, singled out uh, Dave Burkett, friend from the Detroit Free Press, um, uh, about his thoughts on Jared Goff being a bridge quarterback after the Stafford trade. The one thing we know, and it was on display time and time again uh, during this season, 
uh, Brad Holmes is very passionate. Uh, you can tell he takes pride in the work that he's done. And look, um, if I were him and I look back on the drafts that I had made, uh, that's something that Lions fans haven't seen for a while. Uh, drafting players that make uh, immediate and uh, definitive contributions to the success of the football team. We have seen him uh, be very passionate in elevators, for crying out loud, which is something you never see. <laughs> right. There's there's etiquette in elevators. <laughs> you know, but uh, look, I, I, I just dig the way he's going about his job. And, um, you know, he says that uh, the Cinderella story uh, uh, subplot that was handed to the Lions this year, uh, nonsense. This is the way it was supposed to be. And he made mention of the fact that the Lions moving forward are only going to get better. Um, we heard Dan Campbell uh, say after the horrific loss to the 49ers in the NFC Championship game that, look, there are no guarantees, and we know this, uh, about getting back there in the near future. Last time it took 32 years. <laughs> Hopefully uh, it won't take that long. But I think there is the nucleus uh, to continue the success moving forward. Well, you know, Steve, Brad also said, you know, you have to just, you know, get past looking for the most talented player. He says, you know, he said anyone can spot the fastest or the strongest or the most talented player. But to him, it's about the fit and the intangibles just as much as it is about the talent. You're right, Lloyd, and he made a, a, a statement that I find very interesting for a general manager in the NFL to make, saying, you know, sometimes the – uh, best additions to a football team are the ones you don't make. Uh, I know that Brad Holmes and uh, head coach Dan Campbell uh, are very much into uh, the chemistry. And sometimes chemistry in sport is uh, overused. Uh, but one thing about this Lions team in 2023, they were extremely close. They had each other's backs, uh, and they enjoyed the ride together, uh, right, wrong, or indifferent. And um, you know, that's exactly where we're at as we move forward. Brad Holmes certainly uh, very excited uh, that the National Football League draft coming up in April will yeah. be here in the D. We've seen, writ large, what having a bad cultural addition can do to a team. <laughs> think sure. think Allen Iverson. Uh, oh, yeah. right? Right. I mean, we've, we've got no end to those. The idea that these guys Practice. have a very <laughs> distinct strategy or not just the kind of player, but the kind of person that they want is really key. Absolutely. And they're saying that we want to be a perennial winner yeah. in January, not in March, you know, not in the spring, tra uh, summer training and all that. That's right. And uh, that is the key uh, moving forward. And uh, based on the evidence, uh, you know, there's some decisions to make, but uh, hopefully the Lions uh, competing uh, for a long time to come. WJR Senior Sports Analyst Steve Courtney, always a pleasure, my friend. Have a great day, group. You as well. If you get a chance, had a great discussion with the head of the Chiefs of Police for the state of Michigan uh, about whether or not EVs make any sense for law enforcement and for your municipality to invest in them. You can find that at WJR.com. Also an interesting conversation with Elliot Abrams uh, talking about why a two-state solution may not be a solution at all. We'll explore all the kinds of things when we see you at 6 tomorrow. Take care.